0: Really good to look out and see those who are here this evening to study the Word of God. We're glad that you're here with us, especially if you're visiting. And we do encourage you as we go through our time together in this lesson to keep your Bibles and your minds open as we study God's Word. Uh, His Word is everlasting truth. Pure is every page. And it guides our youth and supports our age, as we just sang. And it is the focal point of all that we do here at Eastside. And if you see that we're doing something that's not in alignment with the Word of God, you'd be our friend if you pointed it out to us, because we want to be pleasing to Him in all ways. So thank you for being here tonight as we strive to please God. And uh, we'll be talking tonight about keeping traditions in their place. The meaning of the word tradition is just something that's handed down, usually a custom that's accepted by practice of men over a period of time something handed down from one generation to the next, something that you develop as a habit. Uh, Those are uh, definitions, if you will, descriptions of what a tradition is. And a lot that is done both in religious and secular matters in our world is done on the basis of tradition. Uh, Many people accept religious practices that are traditional to them, and without really thinking much about it, it's been handed down to them, by previous generations, or they've just habitually fallen into some sort of practice. And so, whether you talk about religious holidays like Christmas or Easter, or religious practices, for instance, like sprinkling for baptism or instrumental music, others that we might name, a lot of people practice what they practice regarding those things, because it's just been the tradition. Okay, It's just been handed down. And to them, the tradition is comfortable, and they just want to keep on doing it, because they've been doing it. Um, And that's the sort of lure of traditions. On the other hand, we're living in a time in human history where a lot of traditions have been jettisoned just because they're traditions. Uh, You know, there are folks in the world today who, if it's a tradition, I ain't going to do it, right? (laughs) If it's been something that's been handed down or other generations did or everybody else does it customarily, then that's the last thing that some folks in the world today want to do. And that comes to religious practices as well. When you think about, for instance, um, the practice of uh, worshiping in church buildings. There are folks today that don't want to worship in a church building because that's traditionally done. They want to, you know, worship in a home or some storefront somewhere. They just don't, anyway any place but a church building as as, uh, it's been described. And and some reject uh, male preachers as being traditional. Uh, for instance. And so we don't want to have male preachers because that's just been what's traditional. Or uh, the things that we do in worship. Uh, There are some that see those as just traditional, things that have been handed down by men and not necessarily biblical, and so they reject those. Uh, You'll notice in the last couple of things I talked about, though, that there are scriptures about those things, about men being preachers and the items of worship that we are to engage in, but there are those that see all of that as Really traditional, or some of that as just traditional, and so they reject it because it's traditional. So, with all that said, how do we keep traditions in their proper place? I think it depends largely on what kind of tradition you're talking about. There are different kinds of traditions. Some are scriptural, they're handed down to us, if you will. If you want to think about being handed down from Christ to the Holy Spirit to the apostles and prophets and then to us in the Bible. That's a tradition. We'll see that in a minute. Other traditions have been developed uh, over time in order to help us do things that are in Scripture. Uh, But they're not necessarily binding on us as such. And we'll talk about some of that. And then there are other traditions that are uh, impediments to keeping God's Word. And in fact, some of them will be uh, the opposite of what God's Word says to do. And those, obviously, we have a different... View of, and we're going to do something different with those kinds of traditions. So just let's think tonight together about uh, what kind of tradition we're talking about, number one. Uh, how did it become a tradition? And what's the value of it or the lack of value of it? There are, as I mentioned a moment ago, inspired traditions. The Word of the Lord has been handed down to us by the apostles and prophets. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 is just one passage of several we could look at along that line. Paul there says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So Paul had been given some things. He handed them down to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were to keep them. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians 11, as he's describing... Uh, the keeping of the Lord's Supper, you might remember that he says about that, I uh, delivered to you that which I received, that the Lord Jesus on the same night which he was betrayed took bread. And so that is an apostolic tradition, the taking of the Lord's Supper, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. That's in that context, particularly what the Apostle Paul would be talking about. And we're expected then, obviously, to keep those apostolic-inspired traditions. Paul will write to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So the things that we have in the epistles of the apostles are traditions that we are to keep. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So the traditions of the apostles handed down to us are authoritative, and they demand compliance. If we don't comply with them, it's the duty of a local church to withdraw from whoever is not complying with the traditions that the apostles have given to us in the Word of God. So we receive these traditions, and our obligation is to hold on to them, to keep them, and to pass them on to others intact, without changing them, as they are. And you have uh, certainly that being done in the Old Testament. And I want to look back at uh, a particular passage in Psalm 78 and see how the Old Testament law was passed down. And then uh, it's a similar way in the New Testament, as we'll see in a second. But in Psalm 78, in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. Our fathers have told us, we'll not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Notice what's happening here. We receive something from our fathers. We're handing it down to our children. You see that in these verses? that's a tradition by definition. For he established a testimony. See, God established a testimony in Jacob. He, He brought this down. He established this testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children. So this is a commanded tradition, if you will. You're supposed to keep this and hand it down to your children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. Plainly then, under the law of Moses, you had things that were established by God, that God required generation after generation, to hand those traditions down intact. When you come to the New Testament of Jesus Christ, you have a passage, for instance, like 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, where Paul, writing to Timothy about how to do the work of evangelists, says to him in that passage, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, those would be the handed down traditions from the apostles, right? The things that Timothy had heard from Paul handed down to him, he says, then." the same commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So just as children under the old law were to be given the traditions, children of God, under the New Testament of Jesus Christ, are to be handed down the traditions of the apostles, and then they'll be able to teach others also. Uh, there used to be a rock song t- that talked about don't give me no hand-me-down, you know. But... uh What the Lord requires in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that we give each other the hand-me-down, handed down from God to the apostles and prophets, and then to us, and then we share it with others. That's a biblical concept of God's traditions. We need to respect that. We need to understand. And that gets back to our sermons that were, you know, I've, talked about a good bit last year, especially about the nature of God's pattern for us. We're talking about a a pattern that's set and that flows through generations. It's not changing with the generations. We're not coming generation after generation with uh, God's children being allowed to or encouraged to reject the traditions, but to accept them wholly, these ones that come from Scripture at least. And that's an important concept for us. So you have these inspired traditions. But then you have what we might call expedient traditions. I don't particularly like that word, expedient. But uh it has to do with uh doing something in a in a good way that is appropriate and and uh facilitates what's being done instead of hampers what's being done. Uh so there are traditions that we have developed that help us to do what God has commanded in a good an appropriate way, an efficient way, if you will. And don't hinder us from doing what he wants us to do. Uh, So think with me, for instance, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, about how Jesus incorporated tradition even into his life. Uh, in, In Luke 4 and verse 16, the text says that he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, Here's a habit that he had developed, and we said that that would include me under part of the concept of what a tradition is. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. I don't know how much of that was his custom. I assume both the going into the synagogue and the reading in the synagogue, that all of that was something that he customarily did that was, if you will, a personal tradition for Jesus. I may say to you that in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day, according to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 3, was a day of rest, but also of holy assembly or holy convocation. But the old law did not require that anybody go to synagogue, per se. The synagogues weren't even invented until the intertestamental period. Synagogues, in fact, were themselves a tradition that was developed by Jews to help them keep the law of the Sabbath. To have a holy convocation on the Sabbath day. But they weren't actually a part of the old law. They were a tradition. So, what did we just learn? Jesus kept a Jewish tradition, it was his custom to do that. You no, know, the law never specified synagogue, never specified going in to read on. That day, for every Hebrew male at least, maybe for the priest. You see my point? There is, when you say, well, that synagogue, that, that must have been a good tradition. My point exactly. <laughs> it wasn't part of the inspired tradition of the Old Testament. But it was something that the Jews developed that was one of the few, I think, uh, actual traditions that they developed that was good. And Jesus participated in it. And gave a stamp of approval to it. By so doing. When you come to uh, Acts chapter 16. uh, Paul and his companions are in Philippi. And uh, on the Sabbath day. It says we went down. We went out of the city to the riverside. Where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. There, There's a lot in that little statement. That um, is sort of implied. Number one. If you follow Paul's preaching and his work, when he goes into a town, the first place he goes to is to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He doesn't go to the synagogue in Philippi, and the the, uh, obvious uh, thing to conclude there is that there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. Secondly, you had to have so many Jewish men in a community in order to have a synagogue, so the fact that he does not find men but finds women here praying suggests that there were Jewish women in the city but not enough Jewish men to have a synagogue. Again, all of those are just deductions that we're making, but seems fairly obvious from the text. But really what I want to look at is the the customary part of this, the traditional part of this, where the habit was to go to this place by the river to pray, to meet, to pray on the Sabbath day. Obviously, uh, these would be Jewish people. It's a custom that Paul made use of and was able to teach Jesus Christ as a consequence of it. What we need to watch, though, with these kinds of customs and traditions that develop is whether or not they still make sense as far as helping us keep a command of God. We always need to watch that. For instance, suppose that uh, a synagogue was built later on in Philippi. Well, if you just kept on going down to the river after a synagogue was built, that wouldn't make a lot of sense if you were a Jew, right? See what I'm saying? So those things you have to watch when it comes to these kinds of habits or traditions. We must make certain that every tradition is both lawful and expedient. I want to look at a couple of passage passages uh, where this concept of expediency or helpfulness is used with respect to a couple of other things, but it gives us the, the idea or the principle of what an expedient is uh, or what something that is helpful is. Uh, in the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in the context of guarding against sexual immorality, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. And some translations there will say expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And so if I could say what I think Paul is saying there, he said, he's saying in the realm of things that are, are, are lawful to do, not everything is good to do. It's just because it's lawful to do doesn't mean you should do it in a particular way. When it comes to guarding against sexual immorality, there may be some things, for instance, I think Paul has in mind, that could be lawful to do that aren't sexually immoral. But probably better if you didn't do them. Because they're not helpful. They're not expedient. Talking about something similar in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23, eating meat sold in the marketplace, he says, all things are lawful for me, so he could eat meat, But not all things are helpful. You have that word again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, especially in a particular way. G.K. Chesterton said that a fashion is a custom without a cause. There are a lot of customs that don't have good causes and don't have good reasons for them. And those customs then would not be expedient or helpful or useful. And so I, I think when we look at this area of what's a good tradition, what's not, what's useful and what's not, that's the question we have to ask. Does this help us follow a command of God or keep a biblical precept? That question always needs to be in our minds. And we need to be honest about that. A third kind of tradition is traditions of men. The origin and the design of traditions of men, uh, basically they're just doctrines and commandments of men. And they ultimately replace or nullify God's word. In Isaiah 29 and verse 13, Isaiah prophesies that among uh, the Israelites, this would be a problem. They would have commandments of men, traditions that develop over time, that would negate the word of God that would cause them not to hear what God was actually saying to them and wanting them to do. Therefore the Lord said, Isaiah 29, 13, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. The problem with the people being described here is they said they were near to God. With their words, they said that, but their hearts were far from God. And they were listening to men, what men had to say relative to how they should serve God, instead of what God had to say. Jesus, of course, quotes this passage. We'll look at it in a moment. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9. In vain they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15 and verse 9. When Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 1, he says about the people of Crete who he's sending Titus to, or has left Titus there. He says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Paul is warning Titus in his work among especially the people of Crete, don't let them pay attention to these Jewish traditions that humans have made up. Don't let them give in to that. What's the appeal of human traditions? We have a lot of them in the religious world today. What's their appeal? Well, they escape escape duty. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 15 and see the illustration that Jesus gives us of this. There were some scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 15 and verse 1 who were from Jerusalem, and they came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Notice their question. It's our question, right? <laughs> do you have to keep the tradition of the elders? And that's, that's the scribes and Pharisees would have said, Absolutely, we have to keep the tradition of the elders. Elders. And so they want to know from Jesus, why is it that his disciples aren't keeping the traditions of the elders? You see, because those are things you have to keep, according to them. And they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. Verse 3, Jesus answers them, and he said, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your traditions? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You see, the Jews had developed this tradition that if somebody had a little bit of extra cash, they had some elderly parents that needed some help, but They could give that to the temple instead. And that they should do that instead of honoring their parents, which God commanded them to do. So they do what their tradition says to do instead of what God said to do. And they nullify the commandment of God because of their tradition. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Well, there are a lot of traditions today that nullify nullify God's word. I mentioned some of them at the first of the lesson that just make it of no effect. And then Jesus goes on and says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, and then he quotes from Isaiah 29, where we were a minute ago, These people draw near with me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Why do people follow such traditions? Well, they don't have to do what God tells them to do. If the tradition is what I'm supposed to do, I can just do what people tell me to do. I don't have to do what God says do. So I don't have that duty to God anymore. Secondly, it's a comfort of that which is familiar. We get in what we call a comfort zone, right? Where we like doing certain things in certain ways. Traditions—that's how they appeal to us. <clears throat> they enable us to keep, to uh, avoid study and thinking. We don't have to dig into God's word to find answers to things, to see what He wants us to do. Somebody, a human being, maybe with a robe on, will tell us what we want to do, what what we're supposed to do. I should say. Uh, in a book that was. Uh, written by a Catholic and authorized by Catholic cardinals, entitled Catholic Belief, Joseph Bruno wrote the following. The Bible and divine tradition contain the word of God and are both full of revealed truths. Of the two, tradition to us is more clear and safe. Tradition to us is more clear and safe. We like it better. Right? We understand it better, and it's safer for us to do what the tradition is. That's what the Catholic guy said. And there are just a lot of people in the world that think that way. I understand what I've been handed down you know, from parents or from the church or whatever it is, and so I understand that. It's been made clear to me I can do that. I don't have to fiddle with studying God's Word, actually understanding what He says to me. And it's clearer and safer and just, frankly, easier. So I don't have to think, and I don't have to study. God, of course, wants us to be diligent to present ourselves, approved to Him as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth. But also, traditions of men appear religious. I mean, from a human fleshly standpoint, if you will, outside looking in. Since I've already picked on the Catholics, I'll just go ahead with that. You know, the big cathedrals and the stained glass and the robes and all of that, that looks very religious, right, from a human standpoint. It's got all of that outward appeal. That really looks religious. Paul warns us about that regarding human traditions. He says in Colossians 2 and verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the principles of the world and not according to Christ. Just watch out doing what you know men are comfortable with doing religiously. And he goes on later in the context in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20. And he asks these Colossian Christians, he says, If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? In other words... If you are a Christian and you're dead to the world, why do you keep on doing things that people in the world tell you to do religiously? Why do you uh, why do you submit yourself to human regulations, traditions, if you will? And he goes on to describe them that they're uh, according the last part of verse 22 to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. ESV says self-made religion. False humility, neglecting of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So, what is Paul talking about? Human beings have come up with a lot of religious traditions that look religious. That appear to be things that are spiritual and might help you spiritually. Paul is warning the Colossians, don't submit yourselves to all those things. That's not of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. That's not going to help you in your war against Satan and to get your soul clean. Do what God says. Take Christ first in all things. And he goes on in chapter 3 then and encourages them to do just that. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. These worldly traditions. So that that brings us to a little exercise I want us to go through for a few minutes. And that is distinguishing between these kinds of traditions. What is it that has come from God that is invaluable? That is to say, not to be changed. Must be kept exactly as it is. What is it that we have adopted as ways to help us do what God said? Not binding, but helpful ways of doing what God said. And what is it that is really counter to what God has said? Those are the three kinds of traditions, right, that we've seen so far. So how do we distinguish between them? This is just meant to be an exercise to help us maybe think through some of the principles that would be involved in that. Here's a question. What is proper dress for a worship assembly? Say, coming together on the first day of the week, uh, as we did this morning and some have tonight, maybe to take the Lord's Supper. Um, what's proper attire for a worship assembly? Well, we have a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that is not directly talking about a worship assembly, but it does lay down a principle about dress, particularly for women. And it says that they are to adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. There are a couple of words. We, we Of course, we look at this passage a lot when we talk about modest dress with respect to uh, not being sexually provocative or whatever that goes along with that. But there are other aspects of dress, obviously. And one of the things I want to focus on with you here is the New King James word propriety has the word proper right there in it, right? Propriety. What's proper to wear? That should be uh, in our thoughts as we get ourselves dressed. What's proper to wear? First of all, for a person who's professing godliness. Notice the last part of that. Which is proper for women professing godliness. We could say the same would be true of men, right? What's proper for men professing godliness? Well, what's proper for men professing godliness when you go work in the field all day? Or when you're, uh, you know, replacing the water heater in your house. Or working in the garden. Or what about when you're going on a date with your wife? Or, you know, what's proper in those situations? Not just for that occasion, but also as a person who's professing godliness. See, that comes first. In whatever I'm doing, I'm a person who's professing godliness. And so I think about the occasion, what's proper to me, for me to wear when I'm playing a sport. Right? Something that enables me to play the sport, helps me play the sport. But it can't violate principles of godliness. Because that's first. So wherever I am, every day, I should be giving some thought to that. Because there's a commandment here. Let's add a couple of other Bible thoughts to this. Showing an attitude of reverence for God and respect for others is something that God uh, has taken note of. Especially in the Old Testament, uh, we learn from the Old Testament that our that dress adornment can reflect holiness in life and reverence in public worship. The garments of the priests in the Old Testament obviously were designed to uh, demonstrate or uh, reflect holiness in public worship. Uh, The garments that the Israelites were to wear all the time uh, were a reflection of their holiness. Numbers chapter 15 and verse 38, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassel of the corners. So there's something special they were to do to their garments to reflect a difference between themselves and the world. Now, I understand we're not living under the old law today. All I'm looking at is the fact that our dress says something about our reverence and our connection to God. But you could see that from 1 Timothy 2. You also have the command in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, to take the commands of God and bind them as a sign on your hand, and as frontlets between your eyes, and many of the Israelites took that literally. So you had the, the, the Teflim, the little boxes, you know, of the uh, scrolls that were put, worn on the heads uh, by, by men particularly. But all of that, and many other things we could look at in the Old Testament, uh, would reveal to us that adornment reflected a person's reverence and sometimes an attitude of holiness as they live life and as they came to worship God as well dressing in a way that is appropriate and respectful of a given occasion is uh, is then used throughout scripture really jesus used the concept used the concept in the parable of the wedding feast matthew chapter 22 you might remember a king He's having a son who is getting married. He invites lots of folks to come. Some can't come, they say, make an excuse. Don't come. Others treat the uh, servants that he sent to invite them spitefully and kill even some of them. But finally, the king has his house filled with guests willing to come to the wedding as his people have gone out to the highways and asked them to come. In Matthew 22 and verse 11, the king came in to see his guests. He saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to them, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. Not everybody who's called to obey the gospel and come into the kingdom, does so. Some think they do, but they don't. That's the message that Jesus is actually teaching here. But what I want to notice just in passing again is he uses the concept that was accepted by everybody that at a wedding feast you needed to be dressed in a particular way. In fact, it was normal for these wedding feasts that kings would uh, put on, they would actually give the guests the garments to wear. And we do that even some in weddings today where maybe uh, the bride might spring for her bridesmaid's dresses or something like that. That occasionally happens. I don't know if that happens much anymore. But anyway, those kinds of things. The point is that the attire reflected something about appropriateness for this occasion. And that's just a given, again, in a lot of places in Scripture. Now, having said all of that, let's think about the question. What's proper dress for a worship assembly? Traditionally, brothers and sisters have put on nicer clothes when coming to a worship assembly as a sign of respect for the occasion, particularly when the Lord's Supper is being taken, because it's a serious matter. We're thinking about a death, you know, when we do that. So traditionally, that's been what has been done. But again, I said traditionally. You notice that. That tradition sometimes promoted rich, showy, fashionable clothing being worn to the assembly. Where it seemed like, perhaps, the reason somebody wore a certain thing was because it's a new outfit, right? (laughs) And I need some place to show that off, so I'll wear that to church. And... There is, in doing that, then, a complete violation of our principle in 1 Timothy 2, which is you don't wear things to draw attention to yourself. You don't wear the gaudy clothing and, you know, the fixing of the hair and all that sort of stuff to, as, to draw attention to yourself. And, and just honestly, this tradition that we've had in years gone by to dress up, if you will, and dress nicely to come to the worship assembly, That has been abused in that way. I have no doubt about that. And yet, you had people, some that I knew and know and were members of congregations where I preached, who all they ever wore because they were farmers were overalls. And on the first day of the week, that's all they had to wear were overalls. But on the first day of the week, they put on their best overalls (laughs) and came to worship. Because they wanted to appear in their best. Showing reverence for the occasion. I think there's something to that. I think it shows a good attitude of heart. And I appreciated it when it was done. I appreciate it still now today. The fineness of one's clothing cannot be and must not be something by which we judge one another. It's forbidden, specifically in the book of James, you all are aware. James talks about, in James chapter 2, somebody comes into your assembly in fine clothing and somebody else comes in in poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the guy in the fine clothing and, and, and tell him to sit in the exalted place, but... The person who comes in in the poor dress and, and 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 is dirty, you 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 know, put him in a corner somewhere. That's he says. You're becoming judges with evil thoughts. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. And I have no intention of us starting that here. I'm not suggesting that we do. But I'm getting back to what is our custom now. Let's just face it. Let's be honest. We live in a culture that as far as our dress is concerned, has become extremely uh, more casual over the past two or three decades. It's not been precipitous change, but it has been quite a change uh, in how we dress for certain occasions. And we recognize that. So there's a cultural aspect of this. What is respectful dress in our culture today? Is there even such a thing? as respectful dress in our culture today. And I would suggest to you, first of all, that if there's not, then that's a problem biblically. Because our dress does reflect something about our attitude. And we just need to admit that going forward. Let me talk with you a little bit about the Pharisees and their traditionalism regarding the dress that they were expected, the adornment. The Pharisees built Uh, human traditions, and embellished the requirement of the law, which we looked at already, to make themselves appear to be religious men. Jesus condemns them in Matthew 23 and verse 5. All their works they do to be seen by men, and he specifically says, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. You might remember, we read in the law where they were supposed to do something specific with the borders of their garments. There was a law about that. That was required by God. But the Pharisees had a tradition about that, that what they would do is not only have those borders on their garments, but they make them really big. So everybody could see those things. Make sure you know that I'm a holy person. And they're doing it to be seen by men. And the other things concerning the phylacteries where they put the scriptures in. They would make those really big as well. And make sure everybody could see those. What was their goal? Was it to reflect their holiness and reverence for God? Or was it to be seen by men? Jesus knew what their purpose was. He could read men's thoughts and hearts. I don't know what your purpose is in the way that you dress all the time. There are certain things that reflect certain things. Okay, There are some things that may reflect something and may not, may not. right? In this case, the border on the garment might reflect that you just wanted to be identified as a part of the holy nation of Israel. That's why it was given to begin with. But it might reflect that you just wanted everybody to know you're holy. Which is it? Which should it be? Right? Should we dress in a way that's appropriate for the occasion of worship? There's no doubt about that. What that is, you may be questioned about. And how you're going to express it may be different from the way I would express it. I think that's a pretty good test case. Because you have all the elements in it, right? You have a tradition that really is biblical, based in 1 Timothy 2. God's saying something to us there about the way we dress to express godliness. There's something there. But there's also taking that and making it something where everybody look at me, right? Which is not what God wants. But there's also taking that and saying, I really want to show that I respect God and respect what we're doing when we worship Him. And that helps me worship. So you have all of those elements in that question. What are you going to do with that? I realize I've gone a little long tonight, but I want to say just a couple more things real quickly. Just because something appears like an effort to please God, doesn't mean that he's pleased with it. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 21, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Tolstoy uh, once said that man should not check reason by tradition, but check tradition by reason. And I would say, instead of that, check tradition by Scripture. Check tradition by Scripture. When we identify traditions, if the justification for rejecting or adopting the practice is one of the following, it's probably just a human tradition. If somebody says, well, we've never done it that way. Or we've always done it that way. Or my parents did it this way. Or the church I used to go did it that way. I've never heard of such a thing. None of that has anything to do with whether or not it's something we ought to do or not. You see. Many do nearly all that they do religiously on the basis of human traditions. Others reject every tradition possible. We are not right because we call ourselves a church of Christ. We are a church of Christ because we strive to do what is right in the eyes of God. And so, what should be my attitude toward religious traditions? Love and keep those traditions handed down from the apostles. Appreciate lawful traditions and customs that help me obey God and honor him. Reject traditions that replace God's laws or are counterproductive. Those are obligations. I know I'm talking to a lot of very conscientious Christians tonight. And uh, I'm glad for that because you don't need me to tell you every application of this lesson. I think you'll be able to apply it. Uh, As Paul said about the Romans, you are filled with goodness, able also to admonish one another. Thank you for your good attention. God has blessed us so richly to be his children. But if you're not part of the family of God tonight, and you need to be, there's no better time than now. Whatever you need, we we'll ask you to come. I'll be standing and sing.